0: welcome this is the fly fishing journeys podcast with host rob giannino where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing community you see the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey and we're glad you're on this journey with us check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player here's your host rob giannino It's always a privilege to connect with people who are absolute experts in their field. And that is what Phil Rowley is in the area of Stillwater Fly Fishing. The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout has quickly become the top reference material on Stillwater Trout Fishing. We dive deep into the tactics of how you can become a better Stillwater Fisherman. With these great tips, you will feel more confident on your local trout pond and lake. Additionally, Phil reveals some of the top destinations in the world to use your new skills to catch a trophy trout. Over the years, visiting at the fly fishing shows, I'm honored to say that Phil has become a great friend. He epitomizes the friendly nature of the fly fishing community. Whether it's a quick conversation to say hello or grabbing dinner or a drink, Phil's lighthearted and humorous nature makes him a blast to hang out with. Plus, he's a Boston Bruins fan, so he's got a great hockey acumen as well. Stay tuned for this fun chat with Phil. Before we jump back into the podcast, here's a short word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Are you a guide, a lodge, or a product manufacturer in the fly fishing or outdoor industry? I want to introduce you to and highlight Cross Current Insurance. Their entire team are great people and experts in their field. They have a guide insurance program that is amazing and very affordable. If you are a lodge or retailer, they also have programs tailored to your needs. These guys fish and are in the outdoors so they know the industry and the landscape. To get more information on a program that's perfect for you, find them at CrossCurrentInsurance.com. All right, thanks for listening to another edition of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast. And we are excited to have second-time guest, Stillwater extraordinaire, Mr. Phil Rowley. Thanks for being on, it's, sir. It's great to be back, Rob. It's, it's good to see you and good to talk with you. Well, you were when I podcasted with you before, it was at the Fly Tire Symposium. We're going back like three or four years now. Yeah. And actually one of my early podcasts, and uh, I was a little bit starstruck at the time, I think, if you can remember back to the podcast, because I had watched you for all the years on the new Fly Fisher, and then when I heard you were coming to the symposium, I said, well, I'm going to reach out and see if Phil Roley would be on our podcast, and when you were actually on and I heard your voice for the first time, it reminded me of all those years listening to you and watching you on the new Fly Fisher, so... It was exciting, and now we've got to know each other for the past yeah. few years. So congratulations on the new book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout
1: Fishing. Yeah, thanks, Rob. That, that's, that was a project and a half, but uh, really happy on how it turned out. And uh, it seems to have been well-received, so I'm, I'm just, again, thankful. I just like help, as you we talked about with the new fly fisher, we just love to teach and help people, so that's what I want to do. I'd like to look back on my Stillwater experiences and go some of those hard-earned, fall on your face bloody nose lessons you know trial and error process if i can help you know eliminate or reduce that through that book um then i think my work is done So, Phil, we actually want to call this podcast Three Destination
0: Stillwater Opportunities, even if you had to get into a plane. And the three that we had talked about covering is number one is the Kamloops, number two, Jurassic Lake, and number three, West Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is maybe here draw out some of the techniques that you offer in your book Mm -hmm. and how you would go about fishing those different regions. And When I say that, because this is kind of like, you know, they always say, oh, the Bible of this and the Bible of that. But when you kind of look at this book, and I know it was part of your aim here to really create a new definitive version of a Stillwater Technique book. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about 342 pages, full color all the way through almost every, I shouldn't say almost every different facet of Stillwater fly fishing here. So this is a Mm -hmm. massive undertaking.
1: Yeah, it was, but it was, I just felt you couldn't leave a stone unturned. I didn't want a book that had holes in it. I didn't really write it with the idea of the sequel, you know, and and sometimes I would write a paragraph on something and it would have a hanging sentence. And I always thought the reader might, well, what do you mean by that? So I Mm -hmm. better explain what that was. And as you noticed it Fold up a a lot of pages, 110,000 words. I believe the publisher was expecting about 80,000. So they were gracious enough to allow me that uh, latitude on the word count to get the message across. Well, I mean, when you put your
0: name Orvis or when they put the name Orvis on it, that's a whole new level of kind of recommendation here because when Orvis puts their name on something, it's pretty
1: much now the new go-to book. Yeah, it was funny because that book came about at the Somerset Fly Fishing Show before it moved to Edison, and I was, as you know, there's authors booths and you get paired up and I was fortunate enough to be paired with Tom Rosenbauer and Tom and I have filmed a couple of times together on the new Fly Fisher and Tom is graciously involves me as the Stillwater host for his Orvis guide to Stillwater fly fishing so got to know him through that so we're sitting there just you know a lot of times the authors like that booth because it's a comfy place to rest after standing all day yeah. and moving around and Tom says to me sort of matter of fact you know we, we need to do a Stillwater book and I think you'd be the guy to do it and I was very flattered and humbled by that but also as you know at these shows there's a lot a lot of discussion that goes on, and we'll get together and we'll do that and do that, and a year later we still haven't done it. But no, this one took on us, you know, after I get home a week or two later, there's emails, contracts, wow, this thing's so you're really elated, and yeah. then, then there's the reality of, Oh, rats. I have to write this thing now. <laughs> well, I remember talking to you at some of
0: these past shows yeah. that we're talking about, and you're like, I got to go back to the room and write 10,000 oh, words. Yeah. Or, uh, you had like
1: a quota that yeah, you Yeah, I tried- was trying between 1,000 and 1,500 words a day. And some days, I, I'll freely admit I wrote zero. And other days, it just flowed, right? But it took three and a half years to write that. Of course, the pandemic had a role to play in that as well. But yeah. it did give me time to really go through it again and refine things and, and clear things up and just generally tweak and play with it because you will it's very similar to trimming a deer hair head on a muddler you will trim that thing for hours you know so you're always playing and tweaking and looking at ways you could say things or, or different ways so do you
0: find that people actually love stillwater fishing but yet have the hardest time to try to reverse engineer the best way to have success at
1: it yeah and that's what most of my programs you know, at fly fishing shows are about, about the reverse engineering, about taking the mystery. Because I think a lot of people, particularly if you're coming from a river and stream environment, you know, they seem to be mentally more manageable. That doesn't mean they're easy by any stretch, but I mean, they're, you know, you can wade across them. You can see the other side. You can see places. Well, if I was a fish, I'd sit there, right? It's a nice, relaxed place to sit. I got a nice foam line coming in. That food would be trickled by me all day long. You get to that lake and it's enormous, yeah. it's flat, it's featureless. Half the time, some of the bigger lakes, you can't see the other side. You certainly can't wade across it. And so a lot of times, I think people are just defeated before they start. And there, once you get a bit of a method to the madness, and one of the chapters is how to find trout in still waters, is, is all about that, about how do you break this down? How do you find trout in here? How do you eliminate that old adage, you know, 90% of the fish living in 10% of the water? So where are those common places you're going to want to visit? So, yeah, that was all about all about that to take that out and you know, I jokingly say sometimes gee maybe I shouldn't tell people all about this great part of lakes because you know the opening chapter is uh, why lakes and and you know some of the things I always tease my river and stream friends our bugs are bigger you yeah. know we don't deal with trichos and things like that generally right. you fish tend to be measured in pounds um, we don't have the crowding so things like that um, sure. there's there's a lot of benefits to that we don't have runoff or typically a longer season because a lot of lakes are open 365 days a year, so as long as there's no ice or any barriers like that on there, you can fish them whenever you want. You're not covered by a, uh, a regulation uh, closure to protect spawning fish, which is a, obviously a great regulation to have.
0: Well, yeah, and I think a lot of times we think about uh, destinations, you know, we think about Montana, we think about Florida, even Belize, where we just got back from for different saltwater fishing. But do we think about destinations for Stillwater? And so that's kind of why I said, hey, let's kind of use some of the Mm -hmm. concepts in your book. Teach people about Stillwater techniques and success. But let's kind of use that with maybe some destinations. And I know just... Kind of talking to you over the years. The Kamloops is a huge destination. Yep. I've I've watched you and the new fly fisher. I've watched lots of fly fishing shows. And I said, man, someday I'd like to get up to British Columbia and fish the Kamloops. Yep. So I want to hear about the Kamloops. I know you do a trip down to Jurassic Lake and these mm-hmm. monster fish. So how can we use some of those techniques down there? And then obviously here in the states, you West Yellowstone and that whole West mm-hmm. Yellowstone Hebgen Lake, and we kind of can unpack some areas of those areas yep. for still water. But before we jump into the first one, which would be the cam loops, I want to give our listeners a quick overview of what we're calling here on the table of contents. Uh, you know, this book, we're not going to cover all this. <laughs> but the book <laughs> no. is covers equipment, rods, reels, and lines, equipment, accessories, uh, getting around your watercraft, so if you're going to fish out of a boat, leaders, knots, and droppers, which is such a massive section if you want to mm-hmm. go uh, successful stillwater fishing, How Lakes Work. Now, that would be good to know. Yeah. What Trout eat? Stillwater Entomology, How to Find Trout in Lakes. Chapter 8 is Inducing a Take. uh, Chapter 9, Floating Line Technique, Strike Indicator, and Long Leader Nymphing. That could probably be a whole book in itself, Uh I bet.
1: That chapter was over 7,500 words. Just covering those. Yeah. Just fishing with a floating line. That's not dry fly fishing because I have... uh, as you read on later, i got a whole chapter on that. So th- that was just about fishing subsurface. Using, deep, right? Yeah, using floating lines, long leaders, weighted flies.
0: And here we go, the next chapter, chapter 10, floating line techniques, dries, emerges, and targeting sighting fish. Chapter 11, going deep, sinking line techniques. Chapter 12, the power of attraction, the booby flies. Can yeah. we talk
1: about booby flies? Yeah, we talk about boobies, fabs. Blobs, watsits, all the dark and nasty (laughs) stuff
0: (laughs) I want to know about all this booby flies And then chapter 13 Something I'm looking forward to doing when I go to Ireland The introductory of lock style Introduction
1: to lock style, yes Yes.
0: And then finally your last chapter Chapter 14 uh, What's in your fly box, still water flies So as we jump into The Kamloops First of all, Mm -hmm. where are the Kamloops How would I get there And maybe who would I fish with if I got there
1: Well, the Kamloops region, basically the interior British Columbia, so that's the Kamloops region, which is about three hours, two and a half, three hours drive up the good highway driving from the greater Vancouver area. So that's probably where you'd fly into an international airport there. So Rob, you're coming from the East Coast, which is probably a direct flight, Boston to Vancouver, and then you just rent a car and drive up, do that. You can fly into the Kamloops, does have a regional airport, so there is that option of, of taking a second flight and doing that. And that region, it's basically a spine right up the province. The Kamloops region includes the Caribou and up into the Prince George area, and that area has just been blessed with the right geography for growing Trout in shallow productive lakes. There's so many lakes in there. I was doing. A, I live in Alberta now, so looking at the differences. You know, some of the lakes I like to fish in my local waters as well. There's 600 approximately 600 lakes in Alberta. There's I want to say 20. No, there's was it 60,000 lakes or something in British? It was just a staggeringly different yeah. number, right? And BC has done a fantastic job through the Freshwater Fisheries Society of setting up a fish culture program and the, really promotes the fishing in the province and really stocks it with the sports fisher in mind, right? So these lakes are, a lot of the lakes are specifically groomed um, for 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 sport fishing, you know, and obviously fly fishing is such a great way to fish a lake. You know, one of the tourism slogans out there is, you know, a lake a day for as long as you stay and it's not inconceivable. I fish, you know, you fish around the can, region that lake is not firing on all cylinders that day you pile your your boat or your pontoon boat back in your vehicle and drive 20 minutes and go fish another lake and catch great you know i've been fishing where in the fall where we're up around 5,000 feet and dressed like we're on an arctic expedition and we drive 25 minutes down in elevation and we're fishing in t-shirts right so quite a diverse fishery there and a really exciting one I, i just love going there is it
0: like a state park? I mean, how are these Camloops protected? I mean, I don't think there's... When I was watching the videos and the, the old Saturday morning fly fishing shows on ESPN on the Camloops, I didn't see any, like, houses around the edges of the lake uh, either. No,
1: they're, they're, for the most part, they are, you know, they can be quite... You know, there's a couple of lakes that you can go to Burger King for lunch if you wanted to, and to Kamloops, you're that okay. close. But for the most part, they're all, you know, beautiful open rangeland or just in the... Uh, in the forest, some lakes have a little bit of cabins on them, but a lot of the land around there is referred to as crown land. So it's often used for grazing and it's it's protected. It's not like a national forest, but there's no build, not much in the building. But yeah. some areas there is. There's houses around and places to go. But for the most part, it's lightly populated. You can get that getaway experience without having to necessarily drive thousands of miles away from an urban center to get there. Boat launches at most of these? Yeah, most of them have boat launches. Some of them are informal. Uh, Literally, I joke, the road ends here, and there's the lake. Some of them actually have more formal boat launches and parking areas. So it varies from lake to lake. Some of them are beautiful, easy access. Others are, if you want a 4x4 remote experience, you can have that too. You can have hiking experiences. You can have, a lot of the lower elevation lakes are are, uh, stock fisheries. You know, a lot of times, specifically specifically managed in some instances for trophy fishing with the, um, they use a lot of triploid uh, introducing of sterile. Sure. Because trout in lakes can't spawn um, successfully anyway. They need, uh, you know, cool oxygenated running water to spawn. So once a trout reaches sexual maturity, it really doesn't grow appreciably after that. And of course, in a lake environment, they still attempt to spawn, but they can't. So it's very stressful. There's lots of high mortality. So the province of British Columbia has a very robust a triploid program where the a triploiding is just a, a process right after conception. The eggs are are basically exposed to heat and pressure, which creates a third set of chromosomes, which renders that fish sterile. So with no growth, development into reproduction, the gonads, those kind of things, those fish just about year one, just after year one, figure the you know. No love in life, so I may as well eat. Right? I might as well get big. So, so I always joke I'm a triploid, right? So <laughs> <laughs> my wife's going to kill me for that show. But, yeah, so they grow big. Like a uh, good friend, Brian Chan, and I, I remember one day on Edith Lake, just south of Kamloops, we, this was years ago, he hooked this monster fish. It looked like a king salmon when it came out. Brian's a fisheries biologist, so we took a scale sample of it, and that fish was three years old and weighed 11 pounds. Wow. Right? So it's incredible so it really adds to that sport fishery you can have a you know the un- unique part about British Columbia is you can have a wilderness experience there are lakes that do have naturally reproducing stock there is you know inflow and outflow streams that they can spawn and get access to those fish may not be as big obviously as those triploids but they're beautiful wild fish in a very remote setting you know I do s- uh, schools at a lodge called Skitchin Lodge that uh, and these It's beautiful lodge in the middle of nowhere, walk to lakes with boats on them, and these fish just 20, they're fish over 20 inches on on occasion, but they love to come to the surface and eat. And most of the times in lakes, that's one of the things we don't have is that dry fly experience that a river and stream anglers used to, right? We spend most of our time exploring beneath the waves as opposed to on top of them or in them.
0: Is there a way that verbally or audibly you can describe the beauty of these rainbows up in the Kamloops because I know when I'm watching these shows and they finally net this fish and they release it by hand, this trout, the beautiful rainbows up there are spectacular. Yeah,
1: there's different strains they use. Probably the stereotypical Kamloops rainbow comes from it's called a Panask strain. It's a stalk that comes from the Panask Lake. So the way that British Columbia does their hatchery program is they go to these lakes right? and Panask Lake has a naturally um, natural reproduction, so they go to the stream there, they take the spawning uh, trout out, they strip them of their eggs and their milk and then they fertilize them many of them triploided they take them to the hatchery to give them a jump start in life and then they're reintroduced back into various lakes around the province so it's not a true hatchery program with this fish started life you know it's just you know kind Dumped of in there yeah like a stud farm kind of thing for trout um, these things you know basically what the society is doing is just giving them a good jump start on life so they'll stock those are your stereotypical those pinestrine are little to no spots down the side beautiful silver fish they are insectivores, so they. there's times they will struggle if an, an invasive species of, like a perch or something gets in there. Um, they won't compete with them that way. But these fish are known for their long runs and their jumps. Like it's not, you know, I can remember catching fish that jump 6 to 12 times in a fight. They're wow. just like jumping all over the place. They also have other strains, uh, blackwater strains that they use, and a new strain that's just coming on board called the horsefly strain. These are actually trout that come out of a river system in Brazil, the horsefly and the blackwater rivers, which are famous destinations for, for river and stream fishers up there as well. But these fish live in a competitive environment, so they will live with other fish. They will feed on other fish, right? So they yeah. And they're aggressive, right? So an aggressive fish is a good thing to have because it usually means it's going to be catchable. Right. Right?
0: We're going to take a short commercial break to hear from Tim O'Neill of Norvice. What makes the Norvice different than another system?
1: There are a lot of rotary fly tying vices out there. The Norvice is the only vice that will truly spin when you tie flies, and there's a big difference between rotating a vice slowly and spinning it at a bit of a faster RPM. And being able to spin the hook on a zero axis rotation opens up a lot of doors for us in the world of fly tying.
0: Tell me about the introduction of colors to the Norvice system. When we
1: obtained the company from Norm, he said said to me, just a very, very short statement, he said, you know, I always thought a colored Norvice would be a cool item. We brought out five colors, Radical Red, Sunset Orange, Shamrock Green, Liberty Blue, and Royal Purple. We have five colors along with the black that you're accustomed to seeing with Norvice, and we've been doing very well with those. To
0: find more information and their online store, visit nor-vice.com. Now, if I was, to, would I DIY that, or how do most, if I was to fly in and drive up, I mean, am I going to try to check in with a
1: guide, a lodge, or, or? Well, yeah, there's a lot, well, yes, you can you can do that option, there's um, some lodges up there, um, you know, one that comes to mind is uh, Corbett Lake Lodge near the town of Merritt, they, it's a private lake there, but they have a wonderful fishery, Gin clear water. Uh, Ann, who manages it, just a you know, fantastic person, and just really first-rate accommodations. You can also, again, what the, because the, the way the Freshwater Fisheries Society was set up, it used to be part of government, and then it was removed from government and is set up as a standalone organization that depends a lot on license revenues for its operating capital. So as a result, you can now promote the fishing and, and the experiences. So they have done a really good job. If you go to the go Fish B, go Fish BC website... Or just look up Freshwater Fisheries Society of the BC. They have a really interactive site that you can look up different experiences. I want to catch panask rainbows. I want to catch triploids. And you can look through all the lakes they've been stocked in. And if you're looking for trophies, you're going to look for lakes with seasonal closures, like no ice fishing, gear restrictions, single barbless fly, bait bands, and low stocking numbers. Because just like raising an aquarium, if you put... 1,500 neon Tetras in a 30-gallon tank. You've yeah. got little tiny neon Tetras. You put two in there, you might have two or three-inch neon Tetras yeah. if they're capable. So you've got a lot of resources there that you can do the DIY stuff. Yeah. There are guides in the Camloops area you can look up. Good friend Brian Chan, I think, is still guiding as well. So people often love to go with Brian because of his... just Wealth of experience. Sure. Um, somebody I would strongly recommend going. Yeah, with. of course. There's another company there. Interior Fly Fishing Company has a guide service there as well. So there are guiding opportunities. Yeah. So you you can definitely do that. What
0: would be a setup? And that's incredible information. So thank you for that. I'm going to tag all those people in our in our notes yeah. here. Uh, all those links in the fly fishing or go go, go fish BC gofishbc.com. Yep. We're yep. going to tag that. What would be a good setup? Rod, reel, line, leader, that type of thing.
1: Yeah, for for the Kamloops region, fives and six weights uh, is a good. just a good overall for most stillwater fishing in North America. Um, good balance of sport to catch fish and manage wind, things like that. Castability and enjoyment you'd want definitely a floating line and not so much a floating line for dry flies, but one that's perhaps better suited, you know, an aggressive front taper lines for casting indicators and that for, for turning over those long leader and indicator rigs, you'd want, I would say a clear intermediate line, a line that sinks about one and a half to two inches per second, you know, good cast and retrieve line for working nymphs on shoals and leeches and things like that. And then a fast sinking line, maybe a type three or a type five you can work deeper stretches and you can fish you know, attractors and things like that, you can fish aggressively because the beauty of a fast sinking line is if the fish are active and willing to chase, you can you can use faster retrieves without the worry of hanging up. If the fish are in a, you know, kind of a docile frame of mind, a little more slower, you know, on the take, not aggressive, then you might use that clear intermediate because you can retrieve the fly slowly without the worry of it sinking too fast, overpowering your retrieve and then you're in the junk on the bottom. So Well
0: talk about retrieve here, because I know like Sometimes you have to wait. Yes, that's... Pause, right? And
1: slow. Yes. With this... Yeah, slow hand twists. Yeah, that's... I'm a Bostonian here. Waiting
0: and, like, patience is not part of my game. I I
1: always joke, my most difficult, you know, when I guide in my local waters in Alberta or do, uh, you know, destination schools, if I have a dedicated river and stream streamer fishermen, they're challenging because they're so used to walking and waiting and casting and mending and stripping and stripping and stripping and stripping. And, <laughs> stripping. and then to sit down and say, okay, we're going to make a cast. How long do I let it sink? 30 seconds. They're like, 30 seconds? Oh my God, how long is that? Yeah. Right? And That's we like, use why It's like waiting in the lineup at Dunkin' oh, Donuts, right? It's, oh.
0: it's not, it's, it's agony. Even when I was like, we were blind fishing for tarpon and we were full sinking like mm-hmm. the Rio depth charge. I yep. think it's like eight or nine seconds. Well, the other, like a Leviathan or whatever. Yeah. Yeah And we were Blind casting for Tarpon And like he says Let it sink You know yeah. And like I think let it sink For I said how long He says a minute a 60 seconds I'm like You know That's like 20 seconds And I think it's a
1: minute yeah. You know yeah, we do a lot of that. And then after sinking, you know, getting over, you know, 30 seconds or a minute, okay, how fast do I bring it back? I want you to bring this fly in using the slow hand twist retrieve, and I want you to bring it in at about an inch of time. They're like, what? Right? But you got to remember that you're imitating these food sources, and one of the most predominant stillwater food sources are chironomans. And so they are not fast movers. You know, they the, the pupil stage basically wiggles and elevates its way up to the surface to emerge, and the trout feed on them like potato chips or jelly beans or whatever your yeah. favorite so rich in calories but the trout are not going to you know eat an item that's a size 14 they're not going to crush it like a tarpon would crush a right, minnow a right. bait fish pattern so you got to move them slowly to, to get them to do that but you know people say oh that's so boring and it's like well when they're on you're getting a fish every cast so I'm not quite sure what boring about that exactly yeah does Rio actually have a stillwater line that you would recommend oh yeah yeah I worked with Rio Particularly in the floating lines, specific for still water, so it's called the Stillwater Floater. It's in their new Elite series, so an incredibly durable line. It's a line with a hang marker on it because we a hang is a slow rod raise at the end of a retrieve to induce any following fish to take. So it's a little visual clue on the line. about the 20 foot mark to let you know the end is near kind of thing you can start that that, uh, process it's got an aggressive front taper only about 3 feet so when a line if a fly line has a long front taper on it like the technical trout is about 10 feet that dissipates casting energy you get that gentle turnover so you don't spook a rising fish well when we're casting long leaders and I'm talking 15, 18, 20, 25 feet sometimes you need a line to help turn that over and the same with the these complex indicator rigs that are featuring a lot of thin level leader to get an accurate sink you know profile sink straight below the indicator you've got an indicator on there we might have a small swivel we got multiple flies not in British Columbia but other places BC's only single fly you need a line that's going to help turn it over. So, folks at Rio were, were gracious enough to accept my input, come up with that Stillwater floater, and it's it's a winner. I really like it.
0: So, okay, so we got to say a six weight. Uh, we got a reel standard. Kind yeah, of large you, the real in,
1: in lakes, you know, you'd probably want 50 to 100 yards of backing. There are times you'll get that uh, time you will get a fish to take you in the backing. Doesn't happen all the time. They certainly give a good account of themselves, but the real oftentimes is a line storage system, and you like that large arbor and that amount of backing simply to build up that ar- ar- so when you are gathering line, you're getting more line right. return per rotation. So
0: just say we're going to do standard, we're going to go with like a Rio still water fly line, yeah. and then leader do does Rio have still water leaders, like pre-made leaders that you would recommend? Um, for
1: the floating line, they have the Rio indicator leader. That is my preferred chassis, if you will, for a uh, indicator setup. It features a short three-foot butt section and then level leader. It's, it's 10 feet long, so obviously if you want to fish deeper, you've got to add some tippet to it. But the most important aspect of indicator fishing in lakes is thin, Level leader from indicator to fly. You want to avoid using your standard 9 or 12 foot tapered leader because those leaders in the trout range are primarily targeting surface feeding trout. So you have a 12 foot leader, a 9 foot leader, 50% of that leader is butt section. And that's to dissipate casting energy, gentle turnover. But what happens is thick stuff, as I always say, is thick stuff sinks slower than thin stuff. So What happens is even though, and I've had instances where I've had two anglers—one using a level leader setup, like I talked about a few seconds ago, and one, you know, using this nine-foot leader as the foundation—and even though they're both set to eight feet from distance and fly to fly from indicator to fly off the tapered leader, it's not sinking straight down um, below the indicator because it's thicker. It's kind of sinking off in an arc. It's kind of drooping, and that's going to rob you of distance, even though you're set for eight feet. You're not going to fish at 8 feet. You might be 6 inches, a foot off, and that, you know, when the trout, particularly with coronamids that they eat a ton of, but they're not going to chase them all over the place. They get dialed into a certain depth because depth is arguably the most important uh, aspect of any still water presentation is getting your fly to the right depth and keeping it there Pro tip. Uh, yeah so when they when they get in that zone right and the more bugs in the water it's like their, their feeding zone narrows because they can just swim on one level plane and just sort of slide left and right slightly open their mouth effortlessly and just inhale these because you've got in a strong chronomid hatch you could have 50, 100,000 of them in the water, yeah, and they just gorge themselves silly on them, and and the good thing is, is they digest quickly, so they might take about 8 to 12 hours to digest, so you go out there the next day and they're feeding on them again. So, it's such an important hatch, and, you know, all over North, western North America, and even eastern uh, North America, too, there's chironomids out there, and, and people are discovering that, wow, these little guys are, yeah. are worth learning how to fish.
0: So, that could just be, like, the difference of where people are not catching fish, they're just mm-hmm. wrong, at the wrong depth.
1: Wrong depth and the wrong leader setup under an indicator. Right?
0: And, obviously, we're just giving you, like, the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah. If you wanted to really dive in and understand this leader setup to a more extensive depth obviously grab that's in book. there that
1: would be in the uh, um floating line um you know long indicators and long leader nymphing yeah yep. dive in and really understand Yeah, diagrams everything in there to help explain you know what i mean by uh something you know the adjustment zone i call it uh in my leader makeup for indicators and sink yeah. rates and yep. stuff yep. Like all that stuff very critical
0: um let's just finish it off and yep. talk
1: about a fly like yep. can we talk about boobies now if you want. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. And I always joke in Stillwaters. So we, we fished the booby, which is an English attractor pattern with round foam eyeballs. Let your listeners figure yes, it out yes. from there. Um, we fished the long leader nymphing that we affectionately called the naked technique because it has no indicator on the leader, so therefore the leader is naked. You know, it's nothing on it. And then we also fish vertically using fast sinking lines uh, in deeper water. And at that technique we affectionately call dangling. So, yeah, we've got a, a little different depravity, I guess, to to some of our cute little names for things. So what would you recommend in the Kamloops for different fly selections and patterns? You you definitely want, you know, it's seasonal, of course, but if you're going up there in the spring when all your hatches, you know, there's rich insect populations. So chronomids number one. You have to come, if you're going to fish in the Kamloops region, you're going to fish, you mentioned West Yellowstone, uh, Henry's Lake, they're an important food source there as well. You want to have a good selection of those. Black is your most predominant color in the pupil stage, because coronamids are a egg, larva, pupa, and adult. We fish the larval and pupil stages most often, particularly the pupa. They hatch, you know, basically as soon as the ice leaves the lake, they're going, right? They're hatching right through, a lot of times right through until the fall. So they're just on the, you know, trout just get used to them. You're also going to have damselfly emergences, uh, calabatus mayflies, dragonfly nymphs, uh, many of the more productive lakes have healthy, healthy scud populations. I always joke there: the carbohydrate, the French fry, or the underwater world—they really help trout pack on weight. You know, you, you mentioned Jurassic Lake or Lago Strobel. That is what grows those fish to those exponential pound, twenty-pound rainbows sure. that are swimming around. It's primarily scuds, leeches, of course, caddis in some instances. Okay. Right, and even zooplankton. Um, there's so many again. Fly fish lakes. If you like matching the hatch, there's enough food sources in lakes to keep you busy for about ten lifetimes. So just learning to master them, and then uh, the attractors. Yes, yeah, so, you know your boobies. You want that? Don't you? <laughs> yes. Well, and you know what? Attractors are important because fly fishing is you could say it's, it's a match the hatch philosophy with fly fishing right all yeah. rivers stream you know when you're tarpon fishing right you're matching the, the bait fish yeah. you're matching the crabs the shrimp whatever they're feeding on and rivers and streams the bugs you know the, yeah. the, and, but trout you know, and fish in general don't always take our flies out of a feeding response we can trigger a reaction from them by appealing their predators right so we can appeal to their naturally aggressive nature they're curious they're samplers yeah. you know the, the mouth of their hands so that if they're not sure what something is especially Juven, you know, freshly stocked fish or suckers for attractor techniques because they're learning how to feed. They spent, you know, up to that point in their life in a stew pond, growing, getting bigger, and lunch rains in on them every day. And I can, life's pretty easy. And then they get taken for a truck ride and thrown into the lake, and they're like, <laughs> "What do I do now? What do I do now? I don't know <laughs> how to do this." They're samplers, right? And their territoriality as well. You can, you know, get something close to them, they don't like it, they snap at it. So that's where these attractors come in. If the imitative techniques aren't working, then you pull out the boobies, the blobs, the watsits, which is a blob with a mop tail. And it's named a watsit because in England there's a crisp, a corn chip, or crisp they call it, watsit. And it looks like Uh, You know, a mop finger. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. And then you've got uh, blobs, boobies, fabs, which is a, the boobies were frowned upon on some fisheries. So they started trying to ban flies with foam in the front. So an intrepid Scottish competitive team put a split foam tail in the back of the of a blob, which is, doesn't have any foam in it. It looks more like, it's similar to an egg pattern. And that's called a foam arsed blob. Mm. That's where that comes from. So those are, yeah, you'd want to have the attractors because those panacea strain we discussed in detail earlier, they love to chase those things. Okay. Right. So very exciting fishing because it's aggressive. Yeah. You know, it's your streamer guys would like, Tractor fishing because it's a good tug. Right? So for more information just on
0: that, I would probably either check in with your website or even maybe check in with that Corbett Lake Lodge for uh, tractor fishing. Well, uh, just for kind of the flies. And oh, the flies. Yep,
1: yep. Um, and that. And again, you can I, I, go fish BC. I keep referring back to them. They they have um, you know video tips on there as well okay. and, and fly recommendations. And of course, you know you you'll put my contact information uh, in in the podcast. Yeah. People can reach out to me and I can uh, fine tune a little bit you know the season or lakes they want to go to the because every lake has different like different rivers and streams right. are known for this insect or that food source to help them out that way fantastic thank you for that information on the cam loops <laughs> the fly fishing show
0: tour travels the country every winter from january until march the largest consumer fly fishing shows in the world will be in seven locations the stops are Marlboro, massachusetts which covers the new england area denver colorado Edison, New Jersey, which is the New York, New Jersey and Mid-Atlantic State Show, Atlanta, Georgia, Bellevue, Washington, Pleasanton, California, the Bay Area Show, and finally back to where it all started in Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Show. These are super fun events that are packed with teaching, presentations, and everything you would ever want to know or see in fly fishing. Find all the details at flyfishingshow.com. Now, if we wanted to get down, I know you host a trip. Say somebody wanted to get down to Jurassic Lake. Mm -hmm. Tell us about where we are in the world, how we get there, and what to expect when we get to Lago
1: Strobel. Lago Strobel, or, you know, common nickname is Jurassic Lake because it just pumps out rainbows that are it's an all rainbow fishery it's located in argentina uh patagonia region so we fly into buenos aires and then we hop a flight from buenos aires to el Calafate, about three and a half hours south and then we drive into the lake about a five hour drive in Kind of unique drive. The scenery down there is a little like, you know, the Kamloops region in some areas of BC. A little bit like Eastern Oregon. A little bit like uh, Idaho uh, yeah. area. Well, similar. It's a single lake. It's got one stream in it. As I understand it, years ago, fish were stocked in the Barrancoso River upstream of the the lake. They stuck around. Some of them stuck around in there, but most of them said, "Ah, we're going to the lake." And that lake is. You know, very productive, uh, you know, an alkaline type of lake, so high pH, probably in that eight or nine range. That we explained that all in the How Lakes Work chapter. And so it's just a right fertile environment. It's windy down there, I'm not going to lie. There's not a lot of weeds. If anything, it's all rocky, but those scuds live. That's their primary food source are scuds, snails, and zooplankton. So no bait fish, nothing like that. And these fish just you know, they get big. My personal best is twenty two pounds. Wow. Yeah. So it's it, it, it's an incredible experience because it you you're learning, you know, from a North American perspective, it's it's a different culture. Lots of fine wine, Malbec, lots of, you know, lamb. You have a traditional Argentine asado, which is a, you know, a lamb cooked over a you know a open barbecue I guess we could best say, uh, lots of great appies. It's, it's uh, you know, it's it's hard to... Tough it's, living. It's a great place to become a triploid <laughs> 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 and get big because it's just an incredible experience. The guides are wonderful down there. It's uh, I stay at Estancia Laguna Verde. It's one guide for every two people. They actually have access to 13 other lagunas, lakes, uh, on their property. You can fish other smaller bodies that uh, have, you know, fish... 12, 15 pounds in them as well. Some browns, some brookies. Uh, Lago Strobel itself is an all rainbow fishery. All fish from shore because that lake can really whip up. You And I'm not kidding. Someday, I've fished in 60 mile an hour winds. I'm sure you experienced some wind when you went to Iceland, the yeah. same kind of thing. But the trout like it. It churns up food. It diffuses light. It gives them a sense of protection. Yeah. Um, You know, it's one of the traits, you know, when you're looking to find spots in lakes, wind is your friend in a lake. It's just, I always say it's a bit like a puppy. It can't come over and sit nicely beside you, you know, at a nice controlled pace. It's got to jump in your lap and bite and lick and nip and all those kind of things puppies do. Wind is kind of similar that way. It's never enough. It's too much. It's too strong. It's coming from the wrong direction, but as a stillwater fisher, you've got to learn to live with it because it actually is very helpful.
0: What would be a setup? I mean, I'm sure it's a completely different setup in yes, than it would slight, be in the camera. Slightly
1: different because you've got a, You've got fish size to deal with, and you've got wind. The flies that you know, the list of flies. You know, mostly we're fishing scud patterns, basic nymphs, hare's ears, pheasant tails, prince nymphs. The guides, some of the blobs, some of the boobies they'll eat. You're primarily fishing a floating line, but you want a line that's going to be able to handle that wind. And the line I use down there a lot is Rio's Outbound Floater. It's a really aggressive front taper, oversized head section, so it really manages the wind well. Uh, you know, you're never asked to cast into the wind unless you want to, but most times you're either, if you're a right-handed caster, it's coming off your left shoulder a little bit, or it's right behind you. So, And most of the time, you're not punching out, even though you're fishing from shore out. The guides would prefer you to fish either parallel to the shore if you can, or at an acute angle, so you're pulling your flies, because the fish cruise. literally, that fish, that 22-pounder I got, by suspending one of my balanced leeches, a size 10 balanced leech, just like I'd fish in Montana or BC or Alberta or anywhere else in North America. I bet you I had 20 feet of fly line out and I watched that fish glide up and you get kind of numb to seeing big fish after about the third day. In fact, the guides won't take a picture of a 10 pound fish after day one jokingly right wow um because and you get numb to it right so you you know 10 pound fish is like yeah whatever right for most people a 10 pound fish is a fish of a lifetime yeah. but they're commonplace there uh or reasonably common so i watched that fish glide up i knew it was decent and then it just descended into the gloom it's a pretty clear lake but it just went into the deep blue and then all of a sudden the indicator went down so you set the hook yeah and then that came out of the water like a Chinook salmon, and that's when my heart started racing. That's when you're like, get the fly line on the reel. You know, it ran around pretty good, but I don't think it – it might have gone into my backing once, but, you know, you are just – you know, don't screw this up. Don't – because I have this analogy. The longer a fish stays in the water, the more likely it's going to remain there, right? Right. So we were able to get that out there. So you're fishing with that wind. A floating line setup is bread and butter. You may bring like a Versi tip if you want a bit of a tip on there but not really necessary. Seven and eight weights. Fast action rods to handle the wind and handle those fish. Phenomenal. Yeah. Now,
0: whoever can get down to Jurassic Lake, God oh yep. bless you. call, Phil. I'm yep. sure you do a host hosted trip down
1: there. Yeah, at least once a year. Yeah, they could just call me. Um, you know, at the time... When we're doing this, I've got 10 people joining me this time. So I work with them, help them with their, book their flights. We take care of the accommodation for them because typically we, we go into the lodge on a Saturday. So we start our journey down there on a Wednesday. Typically transiting through Houston, overnight to Buenos Aires. We stay in Buenos Aires on the Thursday night just to get accustomed to, because uh, it's an overnight flight. Usually every, nobody sleeps. I don't sleep terribly great on planes overnight. And then we fly down to El Calafate the next day, stay the night there, and then go in early morning on the uh, on the saturday and get in there so it's a whole experience because yeah. buenos aires is a beautiful city to to walk around it's different culture than you see in north america a lot of european influence a lot of beautiful architecture and things like that and great food great food well that's
0: phenomenal uh, for those who can get down there for those who may be not able to get down to argentina but mm-hmm. maybe could get to the west yellowstone area or mm-hmm. yellowstone here in america yep. What are some options for stillwater fishing around Yellowstone?
1: That area is rich in in stillwater fishing. It's an area probably most people know as a blue ribbon trout stream. So, you know, rivers like the Madison, the Henry's Fork, all the rivers in, in Yellowstone National Park, which is another beautiful reason to go there and visit that. But there's lakes like Hebgen, Henry's, Quake, Cliff, Wade, and I'm sure I'm missing others, uh, Ennis, Lake Ennis up uh, near this town of Ennis, of uh, you know, about an hour away from that area. Beautiful places, not, you know, the reason I love it is because it's not heavily fished. Yeah. You know, I can remember one time driving down that way during runoff, and the Madison was one of the few rivers that was fishable because its flows are somewhat controlled by Quake Lake. And it was just, I couldn't see rocks for the amount of people and drift boats going down. And I get to Quake Lake to fish, and there's two cars in the parking lot, right? <laughs> so it's refreshing like that. It's the same techniques and tactics we talked about for Kamloops, the same flies. The beauty of West Yellowstone for me is its high elevation. So it has, uh, Hebgen is famous for its uh, gulper fishing, calabatus, fish coming up and, and sipping on calabatus adults, duns and spinners. So, and it's, because of its high elevation, it fishes really well in August, which a lot of lower elevation lakes, they're hot, they're warm, you know, you shouldn't probably fish for them, the water temperatures are not holding oxygen, the fish stress easy, you got to wait till fall till things cool, Yeah, they get feeding again. Rivers too. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly, you just change your, either change your species, go fishing for some warm water species, or, you know, I love to river fish as well, so go do that, but well, yeah, West Yellowstone. Of course, you've got tons of accommodation there. You've got lodges. you know, got Kelly Gallup slide in. has got uh, cabins and camping there. You've got West Yellowstone itself. You can There's campgrounds nearby. There is hotel accommodations. Yeah. Island Park. And it's just a... For me, it's just when I was learning to fly fish, that whole blue ribbon, you know, to stand knee-deep in the Henry's Fork. Whether I caught a fish, I didn't care. I'm like, I'm right. standing in the Henry's Fork. Well, that's right. You get the Henry's Fork, and then they say you get the Henry's Lake. Yes, and Henry's Lake is... Uh, it's a neat fishery. It's a big lake. It's at the confluence of three valleys, so at times you got to be careful because it can get windy there. It's like each valley's trying to compete with each other. But it's got uh, yellowstone cutthroats in it, cutbows especially, and some rainbows, I believe, as well. Um, and the cutbows get big. You know, I, I did a new fly fisher episode for them, and I was lucky to get a 13-pounder on on camera. So, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's a- Rock star status. Oh, you know, yeah. That was, you know, you can't believe you actually pull it off sometimes. Uh-huh. But it's a shallow lake. That's why when it gets windy, it can be a little tumultuous because the water, you know, I think the deepest spot we found is about 18, 19 feet deep near the cliffs. That's it. The rest is a giant shoal. So when it's a giant shoal, sunlight penetration grows weeds- Habitat for Bugs, so it's the Costco supermarket of the world uh, for trout, and they can eat a lot of food there, right? Rich in lots of different food sources.
0: What type of uh, fish are we targeting? We're talking about West Yellowstone and Hebgen. Uh,
1: Hebgen has got browns and rainbows in it. Size? Uh, There's some 20-plus fish in there, and also you get fish running out, you know, the— because there's, the Madison comes yeah. in, the upper Madison comes into West Yellowstone, you, uh, into uh, sorry Hebgen Lake. You've got uh, opportunities there for some big browns that come in. You've also got big browns in Quake Lake, which is just kind of downstream from it. Quake Lake was formed, if people aren't aware, by a, a, you know, a, a rock slide years ago that blocked off, choked off the Madison and backed it up. So it's kind of a beautiful and eerie lake all at once because there's lots of deadfall right because it created the lake and, right. and so you've got all these trees you've got to navigate carefully through you don't want to go high speed boating through there because you'll, you could tear off a prop or do worse it's cool there's some big browns that go into that lake too that transit from the river into the lake and back again. Before we
0: close and I love to leave listeners with some like super strong technical, tactical information right at the end of the podcast okay. here because it holds people. Pressure's on me it, now. It holds people. <laughs> but if we were going to talk about like long line leader indicator fishing now, because uh-huh. this is a whole different type of concept. If you want to indicator fish yeah. with a long line leader to get down deeper, yeah. but still indicator, because this is a technique you've talked about. Yeah. Uh, what is the
1: setup there? Tell me how that all well, works. because there's two things there. You've got long leader, the naked technique, like floating line techniques, and there's a whole leader system for that that I use Okay. versus the one we talk about more detail the indicator system where that level leader between indicator and fly but yeah there's a that is the most complex leader system i use to achieve that vertical set for 12 feet hang at 12 feet set for 15 feet hang at 15 feet. with the indicator Yeah, with the indicator how do you do that where do you place the indicator on your leader so it's still castable how do you set this leader up um so it'll do you know because i always look at leaders they've got to help you catch fish and they got to be castable because if right if you're tangled up all the time you're, especially if you're new to Stillwater fishing, you're frustrated. You think, I suck as yeah. a person. <laughs> I just told you to go fish a lake, and it's yeah. horrible. Um, yeah, so it's quite technical. I'd love to. We could talk. Hours. Hours. Yeah, because it's, it's quite, um, it's the kind of thing when I do my presentations, I put one of my leader diagrams up, and everybody just, you know, prairie dogs, everybody's up and looking, and lots of questions, and lots of really good dialogue comes out of those. yeah. So is that long leader technique with the uh, strike indicator in your book? Yes, it's in the uh, floating lines long leader. Can't remember the exact chapter yeah. name. on Bad of me. And indicator uh, chapter. But that's it's not the dry fly. It's that's that chapter I told you was 7,500 words. Super, super super techie. Super techie. Yeah. Super secret information. Yeah. In there, and so. good and. You know, you you master those, particularly the naked technique, I like it. That's just fishing long leader, you know, that 15, 18, 20, 25 feet. The reason I'm such a proponent of that, first of all, once you master it, it's just a fun technique to use. The takes are a lot of times like a, a wet fly swing on a river, that short little aggressive stab that's kind of addictive. But it also teaches you patience and touch. Right, The patience to retrieve the fly slowly enough, because if you retrieve too fast, they'll climb through the water and you'll get out of the zone you're trying to target, and to let it sink, and then the touch, because you're going to start to learn to recognize strikes by seeing rather than feeling, kind of like a nympher uses... A cider for that purpose. Yeah. We use the floating line as that purpose because actually the floating line is the indicator in the system. If you learn to recognize what to look for in that floating line, it'll give away, oh, a fish just ate my fly.
0: And tons of good bugs in here too. Yeah. And what I like about it is a lot of bugs, but it's not overwhelming. I've read some books; it's just bugs and bugs and bugs and bugs and bugs. You know, it's flies and flies and flies. Yeah. It's like which one do I use here? There's like 300 flies
1: here. Yeah, so. and I'm, I'm, you know, my previous books were all fly tying books, so I was a bit, I'm a bit of a fly junkie. Yeah, I have way more than I'll ever need, um, but I tried to put, you know flies that you would bring from a river and stream environment, like prince nymphs and woolly buggers and pheasant tails, to some of my favorites throughout, just scattered across all the, so my favorite dragonfly nymph patterns, two or three of those, favorite scuds, favorite chironomids and that, because alone, my chironomid boxes are, there's probably three or four of them, (laughs) like there's like, I often joke sometimes I can't make a decision because I have so many possible candidates to choose from, I'm waiting for one to jump up and scream, and put me in, coach! Two
0: things, how can we get a hold of your book and how can people stay in touch with you online?
1: Uh, to get a hold of my book, um, you can buy it. Myself and Brian Chan set up our own online a uh, fly shop called the Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. We set that store up to cater to the specific needs of Stillwater trout fishers because it's not always easy to find the stuff we like to use. Yep. So you can get it there. The good thing about our website, is it's all in Canadian prices. So for American yeah, customers, a there's a nice little discount before and, you even do that. And the link? Uh, is the StillwaterFlyFishingStore.com. The StillwaterFlyFishingStore.com. Yep. And then you online? Uh, FlyCraftAngling.com is my website. Soon to be transitioning to Phil Roly Fly Fishing. Uh, you can get me on Instagram, Phil Rolly Fly Fishing. The same with Facebook, Phil Rolly Fly Fishing. And I've got an active YouTube channel as well with fly tying on there and some vlogging and some some tips as well. That should cover it. You could just Google me as well. <laughs> just Google Phil Rolly. It'll work. Phil, it's been an absolute blast having you on the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be back. I look forward to coming back again. Let's do it. You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us.